0: Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is… well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the Gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel.
1: We're going to continue on in our sermon series on the book of John. We're going to be uh, finishing John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. This is the last section of John chapter 3, launching us into um, some really cool stories in John 4 through 6 in particular. Um, These verses will uh, provide us with some things to think about this evening. This is John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Einon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, the friend who attends The bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them." the word of God for the people of God. As you might know by now, my general approach to preaching is to teach sequentially through large chunks of the Bible with the goal that each week we understand a given biblical text in its proper historical and literary and canonical context so that any sort of application that we make is not derived first and foremost from our need, but from the text itself. In other words, I don't approach my preparation of the time that we have together with a predetermined outcome or goal, and then find a scripture to prop up where I want us to go as a community. I have always found this approach to be disingenuous and self-serving, and much more dangerously, it often leads to bad readings of the Bible. Instead, what you get on a normal Sunday evening is that I present a passage of scripture, I completely dismantle it, I probably challenge some of our preconceptions along the way and then attempt to bring us to a good and fair reading of the Bible. And let me just say one note on this approach. I know. I know it's not typical. I know that it requires some intellectual and spiritual work from you guys. In fact, I know that sometimes it might lead you into a season of deconstruction or a season of unlearning and relearning because what I am saying might not be what you have heard growing up. I know, or at least I think that I know, that the under 25 crowd is probably coming into this space with a lot less baggage than some of our 25 and ups. They weren't given the same restrictions. They weren't given the same box in which their faith resides many of them don't defend or don't feel the need to defend the beliefs that they were given in many cases the younger folks they're like blank slates they're just looking to love their fellow human more effectively they're looking to connect spiritually with the creator of the universe they're looking to understand why and how they don't need sermons that expose some of the difficulties of the bible But the reason why I keep bringing them up is because I believe that the Bible is important, that it's worth our time and our consideration, that when read properly, the Bible reveals the gospel. It reveals the truly good news that Jesus is king, that he forgives our sins, that we should trust him for our salvation, that we should follow him with our whole lives, that we should love God with everything that we have, that we should look for ways to love our neighbor just as intensely. I'm just old school enough to believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. And I'm just enough new school to know that simply believing this doesn't get us out of doing the work that it sometimes takes to read the Bible well. So when we gather, we engage honestly and authentically in some of that work together. We have had people leave because they don't like to think. We've had people leave because they don't like to be challenged. But when you stay, when you commit, when you engage, this practice will change you. This past week, I was having a conversation with a member of TRP. She's been with us from very early on, and I was reminded of that simple truth because I realized the amount of growth that had taken place in both of our lives. Over the last three or four years, we both have moved in our beliefs in really healthy ways. We have thought more, prayed more, read more, processed more, conversed more, and through the leading of the Spirit, we have placed ourselves in a good spot to have the conversation that we were having at the table that day. And I was struck in the middle of it, thinking to myself, this is awesome. I don't believe that that conversation was something that could have happened three or four or five years ago. What was more significant to me is that through this process, we had both solidified our trust in King Jesus. We weren't academics writing a research paper. We were believers entrusting ourselves to Jesus. I know that we ask a lot from you, But if you dig your heels in, if you remain open, if you continue to pray for guidance, I'm telling you, you will not stay the same. You will be transformed, not just in how you think of the Bible, but how you think of the gospel, how you think about Jesus, how you think about loving your neighbors, how you think about your calling. All of this will inform how you have conversations, how you disagree with one another, how you care for one another. You will not be the same, and that's so exciting to me. Now, tonight, sadly, I don't have any cool historical critical stuff to talk about. I'm not going to push any of your buttons. We're not going to talk about the first century Jewish context. All collectively, we say, oh, man. I know, I know. I don't think that nothing that I'm going to say tonight is, is going to be that difficult. We don't really have a lot of wrestling to do with the interpretation of this passage. I do think we have some wrestling to do with the application of this passage. But tonight, I want to focus our attention on a universal truism that is revealed from this text that is true about the broken world in which we live. It's something that we all deal with on some level. And as I said, to be fair, this is in the text. It's not something that I'm just finding there for the sake of of a sermon. If you're a regular attender, though, this will definitely sound a little different than a typical Sunday sermon. If you allow me some space tonight, I'm going to make some confessions that I'm not really proud of. It's probably going to be a confession that you won't be excited to hear one of your pastors admitting to publicly or at all. As we journey through this text, what I'd like us to do is to take our cues from the good Bishop, Dr. N.T. Wright, who says, when we meet a passage like the one that we're looking at this evening, we should take it slowly and prayerfully. It's the writer's way of saying, so where are you? in this picture. Now, to be clear, this self-assessment that I'm asking us to go on in, in, in this passage, it should be done with a good understanding of what is going on in the text, historically and otherwise. Wright is not saying, just go on ahead and have a surface reading of this text and draw some applications from it and then psychologize it and go into it and try to, try to find some points of application. He's not saying that. What will be different for us tonight, though, is that I hope to set the context without getting bogged down in the minutiae I'd like us to focus on what emerges quite clearly from this passage. I do make a note here that says, of course, the minutiae is there. And if anyone has any like questions that you must ask, I am very available to you and would love to buy you coffee to talk about some Greek language stuff or first century Jewish context, but you know that. Here's the synopsis of this text. In the structure of John's gospel, Jesus and his disciples, they've been hanging out in Jerusalem. In the last story, he was talking to Nicodemus. He was there um, celebrating a festival, and, and they, were, they were in Jerusalem, and now they are moving out of the, the gates of the city, if you will, and according to our best reading of John 3, they're leaving the city to go out into the countryside. We're not told where. We are only told that they go out there and they are baptizing people. Interestingly, this text in in John chapter 3, it makes it seem as though Jesus is the one that's baptizing. It's him and his disciples. A few verses later in John 4, 2, it makes it very clear, though, that Jesus is not baptizing anyone. Only the disciples are. Just let that one take residence in your mind for a bit and contemplate its importance. But after setting the scene, the story then cuts immediately to John the Baptist, who is also baptizing people out in the wilderness regions of Samaria, The author makes a note that this is before John the Baptist has been arrested. This is obviously before John the Baptist has been beheaded. One other note, and this is kind of verging on the historical, critical, or biblical stuff that might mess with your brains a little bit. This story here is unique in the book of John. In the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' ministry actually starts after John is in prison. But here we have some stories of Jesus and John interacting, if you will, as both of their ministries are running simultaneously. And at this point, though, in our study, we shouldn't be alarmed by some of these differences. We've seen them before. Uh, We've encountered a bunch of them already. So it shouldn't be something that that causes a whole lot of tension for us. But as the story continues, an argument breaks out between John's disciples and a certain Jew. We're not told who, he's not given a name. It's odd that it's just one, but they begin to discuss ceremonial washing. Perhaps the issue is how John's baptism figures into the Jewish religious landscape of the time. How this baptism might uh, lead one towards ritual purification or not. We're not really told what the point of this conversation is because the author's not overly interested in it. Instead, he moves on and uses that as an entryway into his real concern in this passage. John's disciples say, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the man that we baptized the man that you were talking up big time, the man that you said you were preparing the way for, look, he's baptizing too. And everybody's going to him. Put another way, Rabbi, our ministry used to be popular. And it used to be important. People used to come out in droves to see you, to be baptized by you. People used to leave their homes and journey out into the wilderness to be a part of this. But now, they aren't, or at least not like they were. Everyone instead is going to Jesus. The disciples here are jealous of what is happening across the way. They're jealous, or as Jory would say, I've got to quote him here, because Jory's one of the biggest nerds you'll ever meet, and I asked him something about the Enneagram, and if me being jealous a lot was just something about being a number three, and he was like, no, Josh, I believe that we all are prone to exhibiting our mimetic desires. Thank you, Jory. Tuck that one away and use it in a paper. I'm sure you'll do fine. The disciples, they're expecting John to be jealous too because of what is happening. Again, Wright cautions us, he says, when we meet a passage like this, we should take it slowly and prayerfully. It's the writer's way of saying, so where are you in this picture? The first time I was doing any sort of study on this text, when I, when I got to that note in Wright's book, where he says, where are you in this passage? I immediately knew, very clearly, I am one of the jealous disciples. Now, remove the fact for a moment that the source of jealousy for the disciples is Jesus, you know, the son of God, the one that we have placed our faith in, the one that we are hoping for our salvation is is rooted in his perfect life and his work and his death and his resurrection. If you remove that just for a moment, I think I begin to understand the source of their jealousy for all the reasons that I listed at the outset. The thoughtfulness of this community, the diligence, the openness, the transformation and growth that we see at work, the honesty, the self-reflection, the love that we have for each other, the unity we find in our diversity, the way that we serve the community, the way that we engage in difficult conversations. For all of these reasons, I think that we should be growing as a church, but we are not. And for the past year and a half or so, I have not understood it. In fact, I've been angered by it. And worse, and here's the confession, I know you all are on the edge of your seat to hear what it is. I'm jealous about the success and growth of other churches and ministries and pastors. At the very core of my being, I understand that we are all on the same team, that all of the churches within Salisbury are trying to go for one singular purpose, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. I know full well that we believe differently, that we advocate for people differently, that as ministers, we preach the gospel differently, that we reach different people. But I also know just as well that we serve the same risen Jesus together. But my intellectual awareness of this reality doesn't always pacify my primal urges of comparison and jealousy and i think to a large degree this might this is very much unique to me as a pastor but comparison and jealousy is not unique to me because we all have these devices that put everyone's life on display and with a single flick of our thumb we can see the things that we wish to be true of ourselves and we can walk away from that thinking, I am less than, I am not worth much because I am not that person doing that thing, making that amount of money with that family. When John's disciples come up to their rabbi who has given everything to this calling, he's eaten wild honey and locust out in the middle of nowhere while wearing animal pelts, proclaiming the coming of the Messiah and urging people to ready themselves, teaching them to align themselves with the one who would come after him. The disciples not only understand the sacrifices that John has made, but they're aware of the sacrifices that they have made too, to be following him in the middle of nowhere. And when they sense a shift in the waters, when they sense their line for baptism becoming a bit smaller, when they are face to face with the impending changes of their ministry, when they are grappling with what it looks like for their role to be different now, I think I understand where they're coming from. For them, it's about numbers. It's about status. It's about being upstaged. It's about change. It's about uncertainty. If you can crawl into the minds of these disciples, perhaps they're thinking, What do we do now? Where do we go? What's next for us? And that uncertainty for many of us is paralyzing. John the Baptist doesn't feel the weight of these concerns, though. And it makes sense because throughout the Gospels, this guy is praised for the type of person that he is. In fact, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That is high praise, and his response to his disciples' observation is completely consistent with this attribution of Jesus to John. Now, I do want to step over here real quick and just let you in on a secret. Um, In a few chapters later in the book of Matthew, there is one story of John where he's in prison, and he begins doubting everything that he's given his life to, and he gets his disciples to go out and to make sure that Jesus is really, truly the guy. Okay, so let us not forget that he's a bit flawed as well. But for the most part, for the most part, we can stand over here and say, he, he gets it. He knows what's going on. And this, this claim that Jesus makes of John fits with the overarching story. So when he's confronted with his potential jealousy for the ministry that Jesus has across the way, John says, a person can receive only what is given to them from heaven which is no more than a cipher by saying a person can only receive what is given to them from God. He reiterates later saying, you yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the guy. I have been the one who is preparing the way for him. I knew what this was going to entail. I knew what this was going to look like. And then he describes his role as secondary by using a common biblical metaphor, namely that of a wedding. He says, I'm not the groom I'm the best man. And in this context, he says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. People made a big deal of this because, in that time, your function as the best man takes you off the table for any sort of fraternizing with the bride to be. I think that should be off the table anyway, but they had some legal ramifications along with that as well. So he says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and he's full of joy. He rejoices with joy, it says. In the Greek, that joy is mine and it's complete. And then he delivers this well-known line, he must become greater and I must become less. That's a really good response. When the tendency might be to look across the way and to wonder what on earth you're doing, when the ministry that you have began is dwindling A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. He must become greater. I must become less. Seemingly, John is fully aware of what he is called to do. That is, he is called to point people to Jesus, and he's fine with the transition in his role. N.T. Wright again says this, and I think it puts it into some perspective for us. He says, John the evangelist, the one who is writing this gospel, intends us to see not for the last time in the gospel the way in which different characters in the story have to learn, as C.S. Lewis once put it, to play great parts without pride and small parts without shame. He's setting a context in which people are understanding that they must play great parts without pride and small parts without shame. He continues at the very end of the gospel, there's the story of Peter, and it's reminding us that what counts is not comparing ourselves with other people and seeing whether our status is higher or lower than theirs, but simply following Jesus. Here's the truth. I'm proud of this church. I continue to believe that we're meant for something great, that our unique identity and approach will provide people of different backgrounds and experiences with a home to meet or reconnect with Jesus. And this is how I see it playing out. A few weeks ago, we gathered at Evo in their barrel room to sing hymns. Kind of strange for some of the church crowd in town to see another church taking over space in a brewery to drink beer and sing hymns. But what we saw that night, and I don't know if the people that were there uh, were um, aware of what was happening, But the way that Evo is structured, you have the restaurant, then in the middle you have the barrel room, and then on the other side you have the tasting room. And all three different parts of the restaurant were open. And throughout the night, I would consistently see people come out of the tasting room, peek their heads into the barrel room, stand, and smile. But it wasn't a smile like, these guys are nuts, look at these crazy Christians. It was almost a smile like... This might be something that I can get on board with. This might be an expression of the gospel that makes room for me. This might be a church that looks different than the church I grew up in that yelled at the women that were wearing pants and yelled at the guys for I don't, I don't know stuff other things cussing smoking drinking whatever whatever fill in the blank there but it was like these people would kind of make their way out you can just see how privileged I am to be the man that doesn't have to deal with a lot of that nonsense I'm sorry ladies but you can see the people that were just kind of sneaking into that room thinking and seeing and you could see it on their face there's something different here and maybe there is room for me if we collectively as a church are called someday to play a greater part, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, my prayer is that we can do it without pride, that we will be fully cognizant as this text tells us that what we receive, that what we are entrusted with has been given to us by God. And alternatively, if it is our role to play a small part, May we, or perhaps may I, celebrate it without shame. May we be small in number, but mighty in our impact. May the ramps that we build and the gifts that we buy for the Epoch mentors, which I'll tell you about more later and the support that we give to each other, may the prayers that we offer for our friends in New Orleans, may the beers that we drink as people look on and we sing the songs of our faith, may it be an invitation to others to meet Jesus, and may it be for us a clarion call to move beyond ourselves and what I'm dubbing our quiet time faith that doesn't have much of an impact in the world. May we not be okay with just doing our devotions. May we be informed to take that out onto the streets. And if there's 20 of us or 200 of us, may we do that. May we play our part without pride, not comparing ourselves, but simply following Jesus like John is modeling here. Now, look, that's super specific stuff. Okay. These are the behind the scenes of a, of a struggling pastor that's looking out and seeing a lot of empty space in this place. But may you also begin to assess where are you in this picture? Are you unsettled by the changing of your life? Are you unsettled by the comparisons that take place? Are you unsettled by the, the jealousy that you have of people in your family or the people that are close to you? For some of you in the next couple of days as you sit around the table and you stare across the way eating that delicious, beautiful fried turkey, you will still feel less than because your cousin is this or because your aunt is that or because your brother or sister is one of those things as well. And for some of us, we just live in this perpetual grid of comparison and jealousy and comparison and jealousy, and this is not what we were created for, friends. And if you need to hear this, and if I certainly need to hear this, may I be the one who says it on behalf of all of us. We are beloved children of the Most High God. We are not mistakes, we are not accidents. We have been invested with his image, created in his likeness. He is pleased with us. When we are torn to to pieces by our own comparison and by our own jealousy, please know that this is not the voice of the divine speaking truth over us those things that we conjure up in our mind are moving us away from the truth that he is saying to us, which is this and always has been and always will be, you are mine and you are loved. May we put jealousy to death. May we put comparisons to death and may we learn as a people As mystical as this sounds, may we learn what it means to be a son or a daughter of the most high God, and may we revel in the fact that our dignity and our worth has not been dictated to us by the things that we think, but by the true statements of our Father in heaven who says, you are mine.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restore SBY or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.